Of course, over the past few weeks, we've been doing a series in Genesis. We started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, and we've spent quite a few weeks in chapter 3, which is the um, the account of the first sin, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, as they're tempted by the serpent. And we've looked at most of these verses in chapter 3, so we won't read the whole chapter. Um, I will read from uh, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I begin with this question. What has sin done to us? What has sin done to us, both as a population and as individuals? What has sin done to humanity? What has sin done to you? Well, for starters, sin has made us many, many promises. It makes us all sorts of promises. And you see that in chapter 3. When the serpent tempts Eve, he does it by making her promises. Chapter 3, verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll have open eyes. You will uh, become like God, he says. You will know good from evil. You will have more power than you had before. You will have pleasure that was previously denied you. Sin makes all these sorts of promises. And don't we realise that today, when we're tempted by sin, it's because sin goes on making promises to us. To the one who gets angry, for example, at their spouse or their kids, it's because sin makes them a promise of regaining some sort of control they feel they might have lost. When a person's unthankful or discontent with their lot in life, it's because sin makes them a promise that pleasure and satisfaction lies just beyond that next purchase or just within that house that you can't quite afford. When a person persists in unbelief of God or in ignorance of the gospel, it's because sin makes them a promise that they can be rulers of their own lives. They can be their own God of their own little worlds. They can define their own morality. Sin makes all sorts of promises to us. From the very first days, Genesis chapter 3, all the way through to today. But the promises it makes and the things sin is able to deliver are two very different things. What do Adam and Eve find that sin actually delivers? They hear these promises, but what does it deliver? First, it delivers shame. You know, the end of chapter 2 is emphatic. The last verse of chapter 2 The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no reason to be ashamed. And they both enjoyed their nakedness in the garden. But after their sin, 
After their grasp for glory, their nakedness becomes cause for shame. And it's the realisation of their nakedness in chapter 3 that, that causes them to hide, that causes them to cover up. They were promised open eyes. That's what the serpent promised them. If you take it, your eyes will be opened. Now, credit where credit's due, their eyes were opened. But with their open eyes, all that they could see was their own nakedness. It might have been exactly what was promised, but it was the exact opposite of what was hoped for. Doesn't sin still do the same to us today? The temptation towards idleness, for example, offers us a a certain glory, doesn't it? The glory of rest. That seventh day blessing, remember? The glory of earning an hour's wage and not lifting a finger for it. The glory of having other people work around you, serving you effectively. That's the glory that idleness, laziness offers. But in the end, what do we receive from idleness? Surely only a sense of self-loathing, uselessness. I've wasted my own time. It makes many promises and it delivers so little. Sin brings corruption. You see that in chapter 3. Think for a moment what Adam and Eve's impression of God would have been up to this point. What sort of interaction had they had with God? Their, Their only interactions with God would have been good up to this point. They'd only ever seen him as the abundant provider. They looked around the garden and seen that it wasn't just functional, it was beautiful. It was colourful, it was tasty, it was comfortable. It was easy. It was a wonderful life that God had provided for them in the garden. They would have seen God as their director and their guide. He gave them their roles and equipped them in order to fulfil those roles. They would have seen God meeting their needs. Adam especially knew how he'd looked around the the whole uh, animal kingdom for a partner. And he'd found none. And God, realising this difficulty, had given him a wife. God had responded to the need of Adam. They would have known God's respect and regard for them. God didn't just consider them as some worthless little thing to, to, to go out doing his bidding. God had respect and regard for them. He put his own image into them. They were his representatives here on earth. In short, Adam and Eve's perception of God would only ever have been one of a good God. And a very good God at that. And yet when sin enters the world, when they make this grasp to become like God, instead of elevating them to become on a par with God, What this sin does is it drags God down in their estimation. So that God now becomes fearsome to them. When God enters the garden and comes looking for them, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. Why? Because they were afraid. What sin manages to do is corrupt even the good gifts that God has given us. Not even just the gifts that God has given us. Sin here corrupts even the regard for God himself. That's how strong the influence of sin's corruption is. And again, doesn't it continue to do that today? Generosity twisted into an act of selfish attention grabbing. We see prosperity and material blessing, perhaps success and wealth, for example, good gifts of God. 
how through sin they can so often be twisted into pride or discontentment or selfishness. And which person has ever found that acting on their lustful desires has brought more intimacy to their marriage? All that sin ever does is it corrupts even the best of gifts that God has given us. Sin brings blame as well. When Adam and Eve are confronted about their sin, note their reactions. Verse 12, Adam blames his wife. It was the woman. Or does he blame the wife? The woman you put here with me. He tries to blame God even for his own sin. Similarly, the woman does the same. No, no, it it was the serpent that tempted me. Sin brings with it blame. Both Adam and Eve seek to shrug off the responsibility of the sin that they've committed. And again, it continues to do so today. How many of you have heard a person who's got angry or wound up with another, perhaps in the office, perhaps in your family, and the excuse is, well, it's not me and my anger. It's just, it's just something about them. They just wind me up. It's not my fault for getting angry. It's their fault for being annoying. Sin continues to bring this sense of blame. But the most significant of all the results of sin and the effect that I want to concentrate on today is that sin brings death. Sin brings death. Now we saw that a few weeks ago in verse 19. That was the curse that was placed upon Adam and all of mankind. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. God is saying therefore, Adam, you're going to die. There's going to be an end to you. You're going to return to the dust from which you were taken. Sin brings death. But surely there's more to it than just that sense of death. In chapter 2, the warning that God gives against sin is severe. Chapter 2, verse 17, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. When you eat of it, you will surely die. He doesn't say, when you eat of it, you will be doomed to die. He doesn't say, when you eat of it, you will begin to die. And some translations that people might have in front of you will say, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. The the instruction of God is that if you sin, if you break this command, you will die there that day. Now the serpent, he says, "Ah, you you won't surely die. That's the promise of the serpent. Now, according to the genealogy, Adam, after this day, lives for 930 years. So who's right? Is God right, who says, in the day you eat of it, you will die? Or is the serpent right, who says, nah, you won't surely die. Maybe after a long time, maybe. Who's right? Well, what did happen on the day that Adam and Eve sinned? Well, according to verse 23, chapter 3, verse 23, the Lord God banished him. The Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The immediate result is that Adam is banished from the Garden. And by implication, Adam is put out not just of the Garden, Adam is put out of the presence of God. For the first time in history, Man and God are separated. Man is separated from God himself, the the source of all goodness. The one who was the provider and the reason 
for Adam's purpose and vocation. And in biblical terms, it's this separation of man and God. It's this separation. That's what death really is. So you see, for example, in the Old Testament, when a person had a, a severe illness, a very contagious illness, something like leprosy, for example, they were put out of the city or put out of the camp. And the correct response of that person as they're put out of the camp is to mourn. The, the response of the person who's put out the camp is to act as though they had died. And for their family, similarly. Why? Because they'd been put out of the people of God. And being put out of the people of God meant you, you couldn't come to the temple of God. You were no longer able to approach the presence of God. You see it, for example, in King Saul, one of the first kings of Israel, who was blessed with the Spirit of God upon him to guide him and help him to fulfill his duties. And when the Spirit of God left King Saul, Samuel is said to, Samuel the prophet, is said to mourn the death of King Saul. Now, he'd not actually died. He was still living, walking around. But Samuel mourns his death because the Spirit of God, the presence of God, had left him. He'd been separated from God. Or you might know the parable of the prodigal son. The father who has two sons and one of the sons takes the inheritance and runs off and squanders it. And when he returns, the father says, this son of mine was once dead, but now he is alive. Why does a father call his son dead? He wasn't actually dead, he was just living in a far off land. He calls him dead because he'd been separated from his father. And what's going on in that parable is you've got a reflection here of what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. When mankind and God are separated, that is what the Bible calls death. So the serpent, at first glance, might appear to be correct when he asserts that, surely not today you'll die. In a limited sense, he is correct. But in the truth of the matter, he is maliciously and deceptively wrong. He couldn't be further from the truth. His promise is one of a better life. And actually what Adam receives is the death of all deaths. Separation from his creator. And that separation then passes on to all mankind. It's um, a subtle irony that in verse 20, Adam names his wife Eve. Why does that sentence come there and not at the end of chapter 2, for example? Even in chapter 2, Eve would have become mother of all the living. It comes in chapter 3, after the curse of death, after the promise of pain in childbearing, it's an irony that Eve would become the mother of all the living, all of those who continue to exist in this mode of death. And still in the New Testament, we're described by nature as those who are dead in sin. You and I, by nature, are dead. Is that really fair to say? If a person wasn't a Christian, if they didn't take stock of, um, of God's word, would they agree with that statement? That we are dead? Even as Christians, do you believe that, that we are dead? That's not an easy question to answer. Are we really dead? Surely, a person can live a life without God and do something that is fulfilling. 
Do something that is worthwhile. Do something that is helpful to others. Surely a person doesn't need God in order to do good things, do they? Is it really true that in the words of the famous hymn, Thine be the glory, is it really true that life is naught without thee? Is it really true that life is nothing without God? Is it really true that we are dead without God? Consider these examples. Is it really a fulfilment of life for an orca whale, a killer whale, the apex predator of the oceans? Is it really a fulfilment of life for that animal to do backflips in a swimming pool, to be fed, hand-fed, pre-killed fish? Is that really life for that animal? Is it really life for a lion in a circus to have his canine teeth removed, to be prodded and goaded with an electric stabber to get him where we want him to go, to sit on a pedestal for crowds to come and gawp at, to be fed rotten flesh, rotten meat, scraps from the, from the other people in the circus? Is that really a fulfilment of life for that animal? Is it a fulfilment of life for a, for a battery hen to sit in a cage and to be force-fed chicken feed in order to overproduce a certain amount of eggs for people to eat? Is that really fulfilment of life? Now, in each of these cases, the animals are astounding. They are inspiring. They are helping. They are entertaining. They are providing. They are doing much good. But when you assess it for what they were designed to be, when you assess it in the cold light of the truth, this whale is not, not designed to live in a swimming pool. It's designed to be a predator of the seas. What were you designed for? You were designed for a relationship with your creator. You were designed to be a representative of the most high God. You were designed to be his ambassador. You were designed to know him. And so any mode of life which denies that design function in us is no life at all. And in biblical terms, that kind of life is a death. So when perhaps you feel the monotony of life, as though you plough week after week all your effort into the same things and yet end up going nowhere. Or perhaps when you feel the frustration and the futility of the fact that even man's greatest achievements ultimately and so often amount to next to nothing. The best achievement in your career or your, your sporting efforts or whatever else it might be really amount to nothing in the end. Or perhaps when you recognise the instability of your own affections that, that year by year goes by and you flit looking from one thing to the other to the other always searching for satisfaction and fulfilment. When you realise these patterns in your life, what you're realising is that you have found the death that sin brings with it. You have found the emptiness of life that sin has plunged us into. What you've uncovered is the emptiness of the grave of a life lived as a result of sin. Yes, Adam's sin and his eviction from the garden, and his separation from God. But in turn, our own sin, our own alienation from God, our own separation from God, our Creator. And if the Bible story ended at Genesis chapter 3, the sad fact of the matter would be that there is nothing that you could do about it. There would be nothing you could do about it. 
Adam and Eve, when they realise the situation they're in, what do they try and do? They try and cover up their sin. They they grab together a lot of fig leaves and try and stitch them together and and make these dresses for themselves. But their cover-up doesn't even fool themselves. It doesn't even give them the confidence to approach God. They still go into hiding. Their cover-up does nothing. Covering up our sin won't work. Nor is the resolution simply to step out from behind the trees and come back to God. Because the issue is no longer one of mere acts. When, when God evicts Adam and Eve from the garden, he doesn't evict them because they've done this wrong thing. He doesn't evict them because they've disobeyed him. There's a bigger issue now at stake. He evicts them because their nature has been changed. Verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. He's changed. He's now become more like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life. Mankind has chosen to know good and evil for ourselves, rather than accept what is good and evil from God alone. We've become autonomous in making moral decisions. We decide what's right and wrong, rather than God telling us what's right and wrong. And it's that change of nature that stands in direct opposition to God himself, which is the cause for mankind's eviction. So God drives mankind out of his presence. And now, even if mankind wanted to return, they couldn't. The gates are put up. The cherubim are placed on guard. Cherubim are not cute little angels. They're they're fearsome guards. They're often depicted as having a lion's body, an eagle's wings, and a man's face. And these cherubim are set on guard at the entrance of the garden, so no one can enter. A flashing sword goes backwards and forwards to guard the way. No one can return, even if they wanted People are barred, blocked, banned from approaching God. And that pattern is then the same throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Man is blocked and stopped from approaching God. He remains in heaven and we're here on earth. No one may approach. There's just one concession to that general rule. And that is the temple in Israel. The temple was set up in such a way... That when a worshipper came, if they were astute and if they had some of these pictures in their mind, they would be able to see a lot of similarities. They would see, for example, how the temple was set on a hill. We reckon Eden must have been set on a hill by virtue of these rivers that flowed from it to water the rest of the world. They would see how the temple was set up with gold and precious jewels all inlaid about it. Eden was a place of gold and precious jewels. The temple was set up with the entrance in the east, just like Eden. The temple was set up to have at the centre of its decoration a candle stand with seven branches that looked like a tree, similar to how Eden had this tree of life in the centre of it. And the temple was the unique dwelling place of God on earth. The presence of God was there in the temple. Not in the temple courts, Not in the sanctuary, but in a special place, right in the heart of the temple. The most holy place. That's the only place on earth you would find the presence of God. And there he dwelt. But not anybody could come in to that presence of God. Not anybody could come in. There was a a huge curtain that blocked the way. And you know what was embroidered onto that curtain? Cherubim. 
They guarded the way. You see, every time a worshipper would have come to this temple, if they had some of these images in their mind, it would have been one big message saying to them, remember, remember the way is blocked. You may not approach the presence of God. Keep out. Stay back. Step away. Except for one priest, once a year, who would go into the to the most holy place, into that presence of God. And he wouldn't go into the presence of God to enjoy fellowship. He wouldn't go in to have a conversation with God. He wouldn't go in in any sort of enjoyable way. He'd go in to make sacrifice for sin. And for 1,300 years, 1,300 years, Israel endured this same message from God, year after year after year. Keep out. Stay back. You may not approach. And then, Jesus came onto the scene. And when Jesus started teaching, he he began saying some rather incredible things. He said, for example, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Hey, nobody's seen God. Not since Adam. No, we're not quite sure what you mean there, Jesus. Jesus said, when a person looks at me, he sees the God who sent me. That's quite a claim, Jesus. If you care for your life, you're going to have to be careful about where you say them sort of things. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes my word has passed from death to life. How does a person pass from death to life, Jesus? You're going to have to give us a bit more information. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life. Well, thanks very much. I'm already living. No, I've come that you may have life to the full, he says. Fullness of life. What does he mean by that life that he's come to bring? Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they would know the only true God. Jesus has come to bring life. Jesus has come to reverse the death that Adam experienced. Jesus has come to bring life, by which he means communion, fellowship, friendship, restoration, the love of God. That's the life that Jesus has come to bring. And when Jesus died on the cross, at his death, the very moment he died, that great temple, uh, that great curtain in the temple, the one that forever had been a huge keep out sign, the one that forever had, had blocked the approach of man to the presence of God, It tore in two from top to bottom. The way to the presence of God was now open because of the death of Jesus. That's why we read Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 because it's at that point that Hebrews starts to add some detail for us. What exactly was going on? At his death, Jesus was making a sacrifice for sin. Much like those priests had done thousands of years before him. But Jesus' sacrifice was different. Unlike the priests, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sin first. Jesus had none of his own sin to deal with. He was making a sacrifice for other people's sin alone. Unlike the priests, Jesus wouldn't have to return year after year after year to keep making this sacrifice. He did it once and for all. 
Unlike the priests, Jesus didn't make his sacrifice in the earthly temple, the one that was a copy. Jesus made his sacrifice in the actual presence of God, in the heavenly presence of God. Jesus made his sacrifice once for all time for all who would believe in him. He made a way through that curtain, Hebrews 10 told us. Therefore, now, we, you and I, have confidence to enter the most holy place. You and I have confidence to enter the presence of God himself. You and I have confidence and an invitation to come into that place where for so many thousands of years people have always been blocked and barred and shut out. How so? What sort of confidence do we have? Well, it's not like Adam's confidence. Adam's confidence covered in fig leaves, trying to hide his impurities. No, that's not the confidence that we have. We don't come to God by hiding our sin. We come to God washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Having the debt of our sin placed upon him, removed from us. And because of that confidence we have, we are then urged, encouraged, invited to draw near to God. In other words, step out of the death that you are in. Enter into life, true life, full life, eternal life. Escape the charade that you, that you call fulfillment and satisfaction. Enter into a way of life which was designed for you to live. Allow God to fill that hole in your heart that nothing else can fill, that nothing else can satisfy. Allow God to be your goal and your joy and your purpose. I implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This has got two significant implications. And the first is that some of us perhaps have drastically, uh, a drastically low view of what Christianity really is all about. How many of us, for example, bounce from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, each week turning up to get our shot of Bible teaching, have our go at worshipping, singing a few songs, encouraging us, and then for the rest of the six days a week giving barely a thought to the God that we claim to serve and know and love. Why do we do that? Is it because our view of salvation is just a sense of waiting for the rescue? Waiting for a rescue from suffering. Waiting for heaven. Waiting for Christ's return, whatever it might be. Salvation, in our minds, is future. It's either at death or it's at when Christ returns. If we have that sort of view of salvation, then we neglect the gifts that we are already given. The sweetness of salvation is not the release from suffering. The sweetness of salvation is to be brought back into the presence of God. The sweetness of heaven is not that there will be no suffering, but that it's God himself who wipes the tears from our eyes. That's what makes it sweet. That's what makes it wonderful. And the truth of the gospel is that in Christ, we already have that gift 
now. We have that confidence to approach God. So, draw near to God today. Don't wait for the future. Don't wait for your death for that to happen. Eternal life starts today. Knowing God can start today through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second implication is that the only way to approach God, the only way to approach God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So many people around the world, perhaps in this church, perhaps you, are trying to approach God by making your own patchwork quilt of fig leaves, trying to cover up your impurities, trying to cover up what's so obviously wrong, trying to make ourselves acceptable to God through all sorts of means, perhaps by building respect with other Christians, perhaps by repentance and prayer, perhaps by good deeds, giving, attendance, service in church, whatever else it might be. There's only one way to make yourself acceptable to God. There's only one way to go through that curtain. That is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether you're a person who's not trusting Christ, who never has trusted Christ, or whether you're a Christian who's stuck in a, in a cycle of sin and you're, you're constantly trying to add extra onto your life, add some good deed to make God value you or love you, you need to realise this, that it's only in Christ that you'll be accepted. The only way through that curtain back into the presence is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't offer yourself. Don't offer your own good deeds. Don't offer your own reputation. Don't offer your own knowledge. Don't offer your own upbringing. Don't offer anything else apart from the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way to be welcomed back into the presence of God. That's the only way to enjoy the life for which you were designed.